0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware
2: prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fabulous 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder. Please take this moment to silence your cell phones, and also there is no flash photography, please. <music>
1: Welcome to the 54 below podcast. I'm Nella Vera, the club's head of marketing. Our guest today is Emmy award winner, Jay Rodriguez. He is perhaps best known to audiences as the culture guide in the groundbreaking original queer eye for the straight guy series. But you may also recognize him from appearances on Grey's Anatomy, The Rookie, How I Met Your Mother, as well as his early theatrical roles in Rent, Xana Don't and more. Jay Rodriguez, welcome to our podcast.
3: Thanks for having me. This feels very surreal as a West Coast former Broadway guy who's felt disconnected from theater for so long because I haven't been in the scene or or done, you know, a show there in forever. And 54 below has been this longtime dream of mine for many moons. So it's a thrill to be chatting with you and
1: and uh Get excited for what's to come in about a month. It's amazing. I mean, it's a welcome back to the New York stage for you. It's been many years since you performed in New York City. Um, tell us what inspired you to return with A Thousand Sweet Kisses. That's the name of the show, which is an amazing reference to, so of course, Rent, which we'll talk about later. But how, you know, why did you decide this was the time to come back?
3: So I've been touring the best I can on the West Coast and You know, Los Angeles used to have a thriving cabaret scene pre-pandemic, but a lot of our venues closed and surrounding areas as well, such as San Diego, martinis, Rockwell table and stage here in LA proper. And, you know, those were outlets for me. My television career started getting really busy and I kept looking at it as something I never wanted to let go of because for many people who recognize me from TV and film, they have no idea the friends I made on this coast many of which knew I did rent, but they didn't equate that to being a singer. So the only times they really got to see me do my thing was in the cabaret space. And that space specifically versus concerts versus uh, any other kind of performance, it is the most intimate and vulnerable and honest and transparent conversation one can have with an audience. So that's what kept me coming back. But my desire to do 54 Below was kind of stunted because I felt like I don't know anyone in 54 Below and maybe it's better if I come guest first on someone else's uh, cabaret. And I, I just, I kind of was anxious and nervous about reaching out, even though so many of these stories um, that I've been sort of cultivating over the years, finding out what works, what doesn't work, now is the best time for me to come. It's the 20th anniversary of Queer Eye, 17 years from when I moved away. And um, when I lived in New York City in the early aughts, I was a fixture in the, not just, you know, theatrical scene with Broadway work, but also in the nightlife uh, scene with my uh, cabaret show, Twisted Cabaret Mondays, which featured oddly the Rent Band. I used used players that were my players in Rent, so a four-piece band, three background singers, sometimes dancers. I was doing something in nightlife that... Uh, no, no guy was doing, they would in this venue specifically would only allow singing drag queens and female recording artists. And they said, wow. guys cannot bring in an audience. And I took that as a challenge. <laughs> and it was the height of like NSYNC and Justin and Britney. And I remember being really strategic about the way I presented myself. I kind of wanted to come in hot as the gay Justin Timberlake. So. Bedazzle everything and have these garments that were distressed and really present the sort of gay pop star vibe, which we did not have in popular culture. And much to my surprise, my night became a very popular night um, where I would bring in uh, different Broadway stars. Each week I'd have a different guest. And, you know, these were the caliber of performer that you normally had to spend hundreds of dollars to see. And yet the night was free. Um, And so it really, really affirmed my love of cabaret. And certainly that was, you know, postmodern top 40 cabaret with some musical theater peppered in. But I wondered what it would look like to use the narrative of my life, whatever chapter I was in at the moment, and tour with these shows. And thanks to television, my visibility was a little raised. It helped me book um, and sort of pack out venues outside of New York. New York, and specifically Mm -hmm. 54 Below, was always scary and daunting. So I'm equal parts, um, you know, excited and scared.
1: Oh, it's amazing. I, I love what you said, you know, about your show, because in a way you were the precursor to 54 Below, which is now, um, you know, they call it Broadway's living room, but there are so many other clubs around town, and some of them do a little bit of Broadway programming, but it, we're really kind of it. You know a place for fans and performers a performer can come here and if you know they're they can do a whole billy joel show if they want or they can sing whatever music they love not just show tunes so we love show tunes also um so yeah it sounds like your show was kind of like the precursor to this club that you know has opened and to... become the fan place
3: you know shoshana Bean talked about this when she was going down her own musical journey for her personal music her passion lied in uh, musical theater and sort of this sort of more jazzy, soulful sound. But she personally wanted to be more of a J-Lo. And so when she left Mm -hmm. Wicked, she released an album that was so pop and with dancers. and, And finding your way as an artist and a vocalist is so key to finding your audience because they're seeking authenticity. And I always remember when she was sharing that in an interview, or maybe it was at one of her concerts here on the West Coast, And I thought, what is the thing that brings me the most joy that I enjoy singing, where I can have a real relationship with the audience? And I started to realize that even if it is a pop song, the way I perform it, it's Mm -hmm. a musical theater piece. And in the current state of musical theater, with major pop stars scoring Broadway shows, there is this, um, you know, uh, sort of inflection point where there's this intersection where they both meet. And so that was like, that's my gig. That is my gig. So I'll give you an example in the show. If it is a pop song, that's great, but it's a, it's strategically picked to tell a story and Mm -hmm. almost, almost literally. I mean, I, I try to get the pop music to be so close to what just led into it. I am not the kind of performer who wants to just do a set list that would sound good on the radio just cause. Like, Mm -hmm. I have to know why are you singing this song? Why is this song personal to you? Because I found those are the numbers that the audience responds the best to. And thank God my musical director, Drew Woodkey, is just sensational at, I sent him a cabaret show I did uh, in June. And I said, here's a placeholder for you to kind of see my my style. But a lot of these numbers I want to say bye to. And here's what I want to say in New York. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Of the emotions are different. It's yeah. a homecoming. I feel like I've been on the West Coast waving through a window. Um, <laughs> you know, metaphorically, yeah. I just kind of seeing the tours come in, looking at your socials and seeing who's playing 54 Below. And so now to kind of yeah. gather and cultivate this playlist. I want it to feel like this is an immersive story where people can laugh, they can feel moved and learn maybe some of the behind the scenes of things, whether it's theater or television, uh, where they might recognize me, some of the things they may not have known or heard about. Yeah.
1: I love what you said about You know, them saying that men can't sell out the cabaret earlier on in your career. And we're coming off an amazing month where we just had Adam Pascal, Santino Fontana, and Cheyenne Jackson's here this week. And, you know, the boys are killing it. You know, know, here's the thing. They were like, (laughs) you can play
3: Joe's Pub. You can play this. Our nightclub is not a place for boys. It was a gay (laughs) nightclub but they were saying... That's Men crazy. won't want to see men perform. And oh. so I took that as a challenge. I was playing Angel yeah. at the time in Rent, and I thought, I will just have some of my friends on other shows come pop in. I mean, it was so fun. We even had Joey Fatone came to do Rent, and I, one of the songs that we would do, I often was famous for rewriting lyrics and doing parody versions. We did InSync's Girlfriend, me and my background singers, who were both male that night, And Joey Fatone came up on stage and we all did boyfriend instead of girlfriend. (laughs) And that killed, you know. And so we'd had these amazing (laughs) moments. Um, gosh, I Shoshana Bean guested. I mean, I had just a a, you know, Frenchie Davis. I had all these incredible guests. Actually, uh Shoshana Bean, once I got too busy with Queer Eye, she took over the night and it became her residency.
1: Oh, wonderful. I also love what you said about, you know, film people and your friends out there don't know that you sing. And it's incredible because Cheyenne Jackson just said that in his show last night. And it's so surprising to me because I think, you know, this is what I love about Broadway performers they are so talented. And people don't know half of what they can do. And then you go out, you know, into the film world, and you kill it there, you know, on screen. But you have so much more to give, you know, yeah. to the world. Yeah. So I love and the like, fact that you've been doing some cabaret and trying to sing, also, um, because that know, part Broadway, of you is
3: there, a hundred percent. And I would have stayed longer in New York uh, in a post Lin Manuel Miranda world. But guys that look like me at that time were mm-hmm. not afforded many leading role opportunities. No. I just didn't see a way forward. Um, and while I was getting asked to do different workshops of upcoming musicals, like I did the final workshops of Hairspray, and they were as an ensemble member, and they were like, "We're all going to Broadway," and everyone was excited. And several cast members from Rent were in it, and they were like, "You should leave and join us." And I was like, "I'm playing Angel. I don't want to leave to be in the ensemble yeah. of a new show." You know, it it felt like a step backwards. So that was a big deterrent from, you know, going back at that time. Times have changed. And I think we are looking at the body of work or the audition itself. And can this person tackle the material and tell the story truthfully? Great, then they're a fit. And Broadway has led the way, I feel, in colorblind casting, as it used to be called. But inclusion and diversity, but in a way... That I didn't see at the time. So here we yeah, are 17, you know, to 20 years later, and and I want back in. Um, yeah. And you we might be back in. We've missed you. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, I just saw Zana don't being performed here on the West Coast. Oh my god. I hadn't re- hadn't revisited the material. For those who don't know, it was the off broadway musical. I was playing the title character, Zana. What people don't know is I was doing Xanna and making, I don't know, 400 a week. I can't remember what it was, but you you're yeah. really downsize your life. I stayed in a friend's guest room. It was so small that when I'd open the door, I'd hit the bed. That is when I got Queer Eye, thought it was going to be a nothing show on a cable station. No one was watching, bravo. And so I would do days on set, get up at six, do work from seven to seven. They would transport me to the theater. And so long as I was there by eight, missing half hour and everything, Would allow me to perform. I did that for two months. Wow. I could never now work a full day and then sing that score. Um, and I was re-listening to the music, and I was like, Oh my god, I was good. Oh my god, Uh, I,
1: I loved the show. I remember you in it and being the you know, the matchmaker, and it just was such a delightful show, you know, one of those musicals that has gone on to have this cult following. Done at schools and communities mm-hmm. all over the place. And you know, yeah, it's it was ahead of its time. And and you know, and so was Rent. So you were, even though the show ran for twelve years, you were in it early on. Yeah. And those were the special years. What was it like during those days? So one of the things folks may not know is Al and Nan Larson,
3: Jonathan's parents, were um you know, the people who were overseeing the estate for Jonathan Larson, and they were actively involved in all the decision-making for new hires. I had to audition for them specifically in 1997 and get their green light to play Angel. They felt like family. We called them mom and dad. Um, The show Rent itself was so odd that I was sleeping in the streets for tickets as a high school student in the spring, and starring in it in the fall um, Mm -hmm. is almost unheard of. But the level of professionalism that that teaches you quickly, especially when you're the youngest, which I was, Leslie Autumn Jr. was 17. He came in and did a little stunt um, for a couple months as I think it was like a vacation cover for a role for like three months, which I think about often um, because he was so young. But in a leading role, it was me. And so I got to learn from like Michael McElroy and all these different um, leading men and women who had had all these incredible credits and the professionalism that you learn on a Broadway uh, stage and and backstage, it has served me well in television and film. I'm first on set. I know my lines. I, you know, it's I, I'm unafraid to make choices. Um, it is it is remarkable how theater can impact you as a performer, as a human. Um, And I miss that camaraderie. I miss that relationship with a live audience.
1: Yeah. Angel was such a revolutionary part. You know, the whole show was. Broadway had never seen anything like it, but Angel in particular was entirely original for a Broadway stage. And it was more amazing that the character was so beloved. Everyone loved Angel. Did you feel that from the audience when you played the part? Let's, Let's unpack the time. So we are mid to
3: late 90s. I guess in in popular culture, we have RuPaul with You Better Work. That's about it. Anytime you'd see a drag queen on television, it was like on one of these talk shows where they were trying to demean them uh, and not amplify them. So when I saw Rent, you know, coming from a conservative Christian, born-again Christian Long Island family, I had no exposure to the outside world. Rent was shocking, yet it was filled with such love. And I wanted in. But when I saw Rent... I absolutely did not consider that I could be right for Angel. Sure, he was Latin, but in my mind, I didn't even, I hadn't even kissed a boy yet. I wasn't even out. I wasn't Mm
1: -hmm. anything.
3: I was a teenager who knew who he was, but too ashamed and scared to admit it. So the thought of even playing a character that I'd be guilty by association. And in that time, it was scary to be and you know a, a playing a gay character sure on a show like Rent you get a pass because the character is beloved but I had my own inner homophobia to struggle through and when I got cast I was like oh god like I have to wear dresses and I have to kiss a man and and you know the first Collins mm-hmm. I had was straight which was awkward at first and and then we built a, a great friendship that you know really I always joke that for the five years I did rent, I rarely dated because eight shows a week, you have someone pledging their undying love to (laughs) you. It does something to your psyche that makes you feel like that part of your life is covered.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you had a fairly religious family. I assume that they saw you as angel eventually.
3: What was that You know, when I did Queer Eye, my mother finally, I think Queer Eye shifted things When I was doing Rent, it was very much pray for him. He's trying to be a woman on Broadway. When I did Queer Eye, I know. When I did Queer Eye, the narrative shifted from people saying, you know, I saw your son is doing the theater to I saw your son on that TV show and I loved it. You know, people at her church Mm -hmm. and stuff. And suddenly she took ownership of it and she was like, well, yeah, you know, he got that from me. You know, I'm fabulous. I taught him everything he knows. So it was an ownership and a societal pressure that made her anxious about how will people receive me, you know, and the more she got informed and the more she saw the sparkle and the joy and the, the kindness and compassion that Queer Eye offered her friends, the more inclined she wanted to be a part of, you know, showing up. And one of the things was when I was, I did I, I did Xana for six months, left Xana to do Queer Eye ultimately, I couldn't do both so I just put in my notice, finished two weeks of Queer Eye, show airs huge hit. I didn't get a goodbye show at Rent. I wanted the happy trail song. I wanted mm-hmm. the cake. I wanted mm-hmm. to say goodbye to the fans. So a year into queer eye, I went back and did a month um, of rent with uh, Mel B was uh, was uh, Mimi at the time. Mimi, yes, yeah. Scary Spice was Light yeah, and Candles, and um, yeah. And so I really got that moment. And my mother came to opening night. I can't say that she understood the show, but she thought you're really pretty and you look like me in drag. So I was like fantastic. <laughs> um, Great. But it, it's really remarkable sometimes how we can be scared of the unknown. And all the things that Rent talks about were things I was told to fear. And those people who are that way are, you know, they're they're scary and they're going to take you down a dark path. And the truth was the theater community taught me that as different as we are, we rally around each other and become our family of choice. And I've never been a part of any group, church or otherwise, that has that kind of um, accepting unconditional love that only mm-hmm. the theater community has. And I think specifically in cabaret, because theater, you know, we have hit our marks and we have to sing our yeah. notes as written and say the words, but in cabaret, it's that, but a little bit more unbuttoned and relaxed. And in fact, with this show, A Thousand Sweet Kisses, I was realizing in previous shows, I was talking about relationships and maybe I was sharing what was done to me. But mm-hmm. not sharing how my part in it. And I, the older I gotten, I thought it was really important to tell stories that were balanced and share from both sides. So there's a couple of moments in the show where I reveal um, some things that were not my finest moments. And the reason why I say them is because I want to demystify some of the ideas that everything is happening to us and we had no participation in it. To kind of understand our part in some things and, and, and mm-hmm. get some empathy to the situations that, you know, hopefully after looking at them through that lens, you can release some of that. And so, you know, while I am talking um, about love, sex and intimacy, I don't always come out smelling like a rose and I can own it this time, this time around at this station in life. And, you know, there are some moments, there is a, a specific moment in the show that I was like, I could never, I could never sing this song at 54 below. There's no way. And I talked to my musical director and he's like, you have to. Um, And specifically because the, the show is that that number is a little blue. It's a little, um, it's a little sexually explicit, but I learned a lesson from Lily Tomlin that I, I hold with me. Lily Tomlin was doing her one woman show and this is maybe six, seven years ago. And she has a story about a sexual act But the language she chose and the way she told it to a mostly senior citizen, conservative audience had them rolling. And afterwards I said, Lily, how did you, because we did a sitcom together for a year, so I went backstage and I was like, I can't believe you got away with talking about that topic. And she said, it's not if you talk about it, sex is universal. It's how you say it. And if you say it intelligently with wit." Mm -hmm. It isn't explicit. And yet now you've brought us in because we've either been in that situation, hurt someone in that situation. And so it affords you the opportunity to transform a very familiar song uh, into a parody version that is covering something that, you know, might make you blush, but you're laughing, you're laughing all the way through. And that and I've tried it out in Palm Springs, uh, to a very much older crowd and uh, Mm -hmm. on the road. And it, and it, it just kills all the time. And because I, I think I tend to have a sweet kind of, uh, approachable nature, um, it doesn't come off as gratuitous.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. And I just love, you know, it sounds like, uh, as an artist, you've matured, you know, yeah, to the that point was the where big you part.
3: share. I want to I introduce you to who I am as a grown-up. When I look mm-hmm. back at images of my early aughts and, you know, I was in Rent. Like, look at our costumes. Those costumes were oddly relevant at the time. Like, when you went to a party during my Rent era, it was not uncommon to see someone dressed in the style of the show because that's what was reflected in popular culture. So I look back at these pictures and I was like, I don't know what boy band i thought i was in <laughs> with these bedazzled shirts and these ripped you know but I, I, you know then you go from there for me to zana i had platinum white hair walking around the city with residual glitter from the night before that was my life and then queer eye was all about the style taste and class while i'm living in new york so it was a, b- a bit of that but more sophisticated you take all of that which will never leave me and grow up a little And then you figure out how those pieces of you still find their way in, um, but in a way that feels right and age appropriate for this place that you are in now. And with the musicality, it's also like taking um, songs from the radio that are performed by a much younger audience and transforming them to what makes sense and what's relatable for you to be performing them. Um, And I use that word specifically. I just did a concert not so long ago with a friend who is a singer. He is a recording artist, singer. Mm-hmm. I see myself as a storyteller. And so us doing a show together was really a lot of give and take because I like to tell stories and he's more of the recording artist guy. And there were differences. And somehow we found our way together with each of us taking a page from the other's book. And there was a cohesiveness that I I didn't anticipate finding in that kind of pro- program.
1: That's great. Um Speaking of, so you are having some wonderful guest stars come and join you on stage, some friends from the Broadway world. Um, yes. So that's delightful. Are we allowed yeah. to say who they are? Or are you keeping sure. them a secret? <laughs> well, the first night
3: is Claiborne Elder, which, you know, um, he's just a fantastic entertainer performer. People know him from Company, The Gilded Age. Um, mm-hmm. He's also been in the Bonnie and Clyde uh, Broadway cast. Um, and so... I was searching for folks to ask and I wanted some people I knew for sure. And then some people that I didn't, the show's called a thousand sweet kisses. And my intent is to tell all these stories, good, bad, and otherwise, and land on something familiar, which I think is going to be, I'll cover you. And that's where my duet partners come in and the show will end with one sweet kiss. And, um, which is a very awkward thing to approach a stranger about and say, hi, Broadway star, you may not know me, but I have a show of 54 Below and I'd like to do this duet. And oh, yeah, there's a kiss at the end. Um, how does that sound, stranger? Um, but, uh, you know, to my uh, merriment and and surprise, everyone's really cool. The other thing is uh, I know some great folks who I've known for 20 years who happen to be now huge Broadway stars, people like Orfe, who will be wedding I'll cover you with me on the streaming night which will be Friday the 27th Mm. wanted to make sure I went live every single day during the pandemic uh, on Facebook and Instagram built this great following and I would do concerts from my bedroom so from concerts in my bedroom all the way to 54 below I wanted them to have songs that they loved and I'll cover you was one of them so um being the big Broadway star girly that she is we met when Mm. she was doing Saturday Night Fever and I have loved her ever since. Um, her and her husband, Andy Carl, I think are just, just heaven. And we chat on social media, kept in touch that way all these years. But I was, when I tell you, I was so scared to ask her. She was my first ask. And I was so scared that she would, I, and, I, and in my message, just imagine, I'm in your DMs. You see a <laughs> voice note from, you know, someone you've known a long time, but like, what is he voice noting me? And I first start with, Completely giving them a way out. I'm like, listen, I'm about to ask you something. No <laughs> is a complete sentence. Even if you just don't want to do it, you don't have the time, you have a conflict, I'll completely understand. But I'm coming back to New York for the first time in over 17 years. I'm super scared and nervous. And all I would love is to see a familiar face on that stage duetting with me, someone I admire, respect, and look up to. Here's the deal. You know, I'm going to pay you for your time. Like I, I tried to really sweeten the pot. Um, and Orfe immediately was like, here's my number call me. Um, and so we chatted and it was great. And I'm excited because, um, I think, um, you know, in some ways this reminds me of when in high school, they would ask the quarterback to be in the school musical. You Mm -hmm. want, you know, you want the popular kids to come play with you. But for me, selfishly, it's also just that moment of I've played stages alone for years, but the moment of, um, Performing and storytelling with an actual Broadway performer, actor, singer, there's um, there's a magic that you can't duplicate if you're just singing a duet somewhere for the vocals alone. And mm-hmm. I just couldn't think of a better button to my show than I'll Cover You. And and so that's what it'll be. And the, the last night um, is still TBD. I have another rehearsal and Drew and I are going to brainstorm. We want to make that one. Um, the biggest ask yet, and see where we land with it. Um, you know, I'm shooting for some folks who I don't know, but are big names. And you know, my my friends who I asked about this said, just ask so and so. I know they're a celebrity, but they probably know of you. And what's the worst thing they could say? No. Um, and, and that's true. Um, I, you know, um, but I, I did have some wish list folks out there that I'm like, I wonder. A lot of people are working, which is good.
2: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void more prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Well, fantastic. We're super, super excited. Um, I want to go back and ask you about um, a couple of things. You know, we know, we obviously you're famous for playing Angel and we've had, you know, drag and trans characters in Broadway forever from La Cage to the producers to Rent They've always been beloved and welcomed by audiences. And is it frustrating to you to see the attack on our drag artists and our trans friends and our non-binary friends? Um, Does it feel like we're regressing? Is it weird to have, you know, been famous for this part, you know, two decades ago and think, oh, you know, we've changed minds and we've opened these doors and then find ourselves today?
3: So I don't think I had seen much drag representation outside of, you know, RuPaul. Uh, and musical theater Angel was my first because I was, I think, 17 when I saw the show. So I remember not quite fully understanding drag yet myself. But then I have to jump into the show and play someone who fully understands who they are, a fully realized human being with history. I remember I delved deep with like Paris is Burning, Tu Wong Fu. I was given all this homework And then I would go out to the clubs and get snuck in uh, underage because I was Angel and got to experience drag culture, specifically the ballroom scene. That being said, all these, you know, audience members from all walks of the political spectrum obsessed with Rent, love the character of Angel, right? I do Queer Eye. The world embraces us. Donald Trump does an episode. We've got George Bush talking about, (laughs) making a joke about us in a positive way. There was almost this acceptance of us, don't marry though, can't get married, no marriage equality yet, Um, Mm -mm. and don't tell us too much about your (laughs) sex life or anything, but we like you guys, you can do our hair, you know, it was limiting. Um, And for years, whether it is, you know, Tootsie or any other films that uh, were out that were rated PG-13 and suddenly now, uh, Hairspray, now there's this bizarre uh, attack on the art form of drag, which has nothing to do about uh, anything that is disruptive or whatever. Look, all entertainment uh, is tiered in ways that it's very easy to tell who should be consuming it at what point in life right And that's undeniable. You're not going to take a six-year-old to an rated R movie. It's up to obviously the parents to do their homework. But drag in and of itself innately is not dangerous. Story Hour by Drag Queens is not dangerous. You know, None of that is, in my opinion, going to adjust someone's logic as a kid. I knew very much who I was as a kid. Um, and I think the idea of drag being suddenly dangerous is, is, pivot, is just literally trying to uh, pivot away from the real issues that the country is dealing with. It has nothing to do with nothing. They thought drag queens would be a vulnerable scapegoat for a lot of larger issues that our country is facing. But, you know, I think uh, to a, you know, a midnight drag show at a bar is not the same drag show you're going to get if it's a story hour with an approved book that's already at that school's library. Mm-hmm. The truth is that LGBTQ plus kids are bullied in schools disproportionately higher than their straight counterparts. Um, and and queer students do not just become queer at 18. You have years and years and years of knowing who you are, sometimes hiding or code switching just to get by for safety reasons as a child. So there's no grooming or sexualization of kids unless you consider what I went through, which is when you are in first grade, is that your girlfriend? Oh, you're gonna be a looker when you're older. That to me is grooming, you know, all the different ways I was forced to Mm -hmm. be something that I did not personally resonate with. I think the community is saying, um, the LGBT plus community is saying, we've all been children who were LGBT and felt unseen and unsafe. And parents should have protected us by making us more visible, making it punishable by, you know, uh, whatever by by you know making sure that bullying doesn't happen, that violence doesn't happen against us. There's a lot of folks who think, parents who think, if I find out, I still have x number of years to fix them. Your child is not broken. Mm-hmm. You know, all the best thing you can do is love and support your child and trust that what they're feeling, if they're saying it to you, they've struggled with this feeling. And that it takes such courage and strength to share or even come out at an early age. I didn't. Um, there were kids in my school that were very out and loud and proud and I saw the way they were treated. And I was like, no, ma'am, that will not be me. You know, and so I, I was, you know, yeah. I, even in musical theater, I just was, I think at the very least, I was kind of just don't ask, don't tell kind of vibes. But I think the attack on drag queens is wildly unnecessary Um, I will say I did play a lot of drag queens on television and film, and that kind of went away when the drag race girls come. Now when an audition for a drag queen role comes (laughs) along, I just literally text my agents. I'm like, they're going to get a drag race girly, and that's totally fine. I'm good with it. I don't want to shave. On to the next one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. I think those of us that work in the theater, because we're in our little protected cocoon where – everybody gets to act and put on wigs and be whatever. And yeah, so and just, it's such a bizarre theater. fixation. Drag
3: is one of the first places <laughs> that it was, it began. Women were not allowed to act on stage. And so men would play those characters. Yep. It's not indicative of anything other than you are playing a character. Yeah. You know, if you talk to people like Beyond Beyonce, they're yeah. like, I'm a clown. I'm, I am literally mm-hmm. in makeup and costumes for the sole purpose of entertainment. Um, but, you yeah. know, being out in the early aughts was an act of political defiance. You know, being uh, LGBTQIA plus to being anywhere uh, on the trans spectrum, you know, transvestite drag queen to transgender, transsexual, those topics... almost unheard of we did not have the terminology non-binary yet most of my non-binary friends who identify as non-binary now back then use the term uh, androgynous and even my character Mm Zano, i think we could safely qualify as non-binary because um their lyric in the show is i'm man woman gay straight all things in between i leave no one out in the 11 o'clock number someday you might love me and so I look back at my career, and speaking of the bubble you mentioned, first I play a drag queen who dies from AIDS-related complications. Then I go off to Lincoln Center and do a play opposite Hope Davids about microaggressions on a college campus. Then I go off and do Xanadol playing a non-binary character all, all before the year and during the year 2003. So my life was mm-hmm. around people who are fighting for equality, through the art form of theater. We were storytellers that were reflecting a human experience that had not often been told. And even though you were an audience member being entertained, the messaging was very subversive. I like these people. I have empathy for these characters. Therefore, when I go out into the world and I see folks that remind me of these folks, hopefully the message was, I will be kinder, More, I will listen, I will try to expand what I previously thought of as scary or unknown to just oh that's so and so and they're a human being that deserves respect, love, and kindness.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a theme with your career because uh, you know queer. Eye did the same thing how on happened. a grand, explosive scale. Like, how did you become involved with that project I'm in particular? Die. Like, did you audition oh God, or Ellen, did you were going to yeah. die?
3: All right, so. I'm doing Don't, right? We already talked about it. Every <laughs> off Broadway performer, actually, y'all are making y'all off Broadway kids are making probably still not enough to live in New York City, but making way more than we made. But that's neither here nor there. So I'm doing Don't. I'm doing Excel, so I got a little bank coming in, but I still got to move out of my nice apartment um, that rent had afforded me into a you know two bedroom share and teeny tiny room. I get a call from my agent. It's a different agent, at agency, and they say, "Hey, we have this audition." It's for a hosting job, which, to my mind, is you stand in front of a building with a microphone and talk about it, and they want you to be a nightlife mm-hmm. expert. Nella, to me, that's standing in front of the night, uh, you know, limelight and giving its history. I don't know, so I go <laughs> into this audition. I have platinum white hair. I tried to dress sophisticated. I don't know if I nailed it or not. I'm sitting across from a woman. She is a she's. I think formerly a casting director, and now she was doing product placement for this new show that didn't have a title that I was told. And she asked me to take her on a romantic date as a divorced dad living on Long Island. Where would we go in the city? What would we do? Now, I was a man about town. I knew everything. So I you know, I picked the butterfly exhibit. I had this great restaurant that my friend was a chef at so I could get us at the chef's table. Like Things that if you're New Yorker, New Yorker, New Yorker in the scene would be common sense to us. But if you're coming from Long Island, maybe you didn't have access to. She was floored. She said, "How old are you?" I said, "23." She said, "You're 27." Uh, she said, "Where'd you go to college?" I said, "Well, I started, but then I got queer. I got rent, and so I couldn't fit." She's like, "You graduated," so she wanted me to lie. The next day for NBC and Bravo, a panel of them in a boardroom. That would be my callback. I go in, and there's three chairs facing a long packed boardroom. And so I sit in the middle of the of the three chairs because that was the empty seat and there's a brightly dressed blonde guy to my right and sort of a gay buddy holly to my left and I would answer the very simple questions the board would ask me. But these two knuckleheads kept trying to discredit me and making jabs and poking fun. So about three questions in I'm realizing I'm not getting this and these guys are upstaging me because they are also up for this part and they want it more. So here's what I'm going to do. NBC is in the room. They do sitcoms. I'm going to be funny, quick-witted, quippy, and memorable. I didn't get this job, but gosh darn it, they're going to remember my name. This little blonde Puerto Rican kid, right? With probably residual eyeliner and probably some glitter that would not wash off, right? So get the visual. (laughs) It turns out it was Carson Kressley and Ted Allen who were already on the show And that audition was a chemistry test to see if I could comedically hold my own with existing cast members. And then I left. No one tells me this. I called this new agent at my agency. And I was like, don't ever submit me for like that. I know you don't know me. I was out of my league. They completely made a fool out of me. He's like, okay. Hangs up. I'm in the Junk dressing room. I'm applying my glitter for that night's performance. I get a call from said agent again. And I thought I was in trouble because I kind of was, you know, really hot when I spoke to him. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, well, guess you didn't do that bad. You start Monday. And I was shocked. All I was told was it was like Charlie's Angels meets The View and you need to be openly gay and you're going to be making people over and you're a nightlife host. And none of it that I was told at that time, ultimately ended up being what I was going to do. But I remember in that moment feeling like my life is going to change. I did not think it was going to be a global phenomenon, but I was like, I'm going to be making, you know, money enough to like get my own apartment. You know what I mean? So this is the funny (laughs) thing. The boys did not know me, right? They all decided to come that week to see Zana Don't.
1: Oh my not
3: Is a sparkly, glittery, gay LGBTQ y- yes. show. And I remember looking out, one of the numbers is called Be a Man. And I start out in a long, like military jacket with boots and aviators and the military mm-hmm. hat in olive green. There's some sparkles on it. During um, the middle toward the end of the song, there's a reveal and a high note where I take that off and you realize I'm in a crop top military jacket shirt combo with short, short military pants, both completely bedazzled, huge boots, which have also (laughs) been bedazzled. I mean, it is literally like, if you were gonna go look up sexy military at Party City and throw glitter (laughs) on it and stones,
2: and then I do that,
3: you do the whole like high note thing, I could hear from where I was on stage, the whole row of them bust out to this day. I remember them laughing so hard, uncontrollably at that moment. And I thought, well, at least they get me. At least they know because I was the only Mm -hmm. one in our cast of Queer Eye that had that theatrical theater energy. Carson is a big personality, but specifically from theater that if I were to ever do anything and there were glitter, glitter, or singing involved, they're like, oh, yeah, it's just Jay, you know, and I like that. I've held held on to that piece.
1: Obviously, such an iconic role that impacted your life and career. Um, Do you have a favorite episode that you remember? I have so many that I remember. I remember Kylie Minogue was on the show at one point, right?
3: So so Capitol Records did an album for um, some of the songs that would appear. We did a partnership with them, and she was on there. She lovingly um, wanted to do... Uh, the hip tips with us at the end of the show, which I loved. Um, But one of the things that I I think of most was we essentially were superheroes in the way that when we asked, season one, no one wanted to work with us. Let's make that clear. The word queer, no big company wanted to be affiliated. I think we had like IKEA for everything. No one wanted to work with us because they were scared of the (laughs) word. Season two, everybody wanted to work with us. So we got to assess out who we really wanted to be in business with. That being said, you have the ability to call any place and say, we want to shoot there. And for them to say, open door, have whatever you need, do whatever. So some of the biggest mem- memories I have are, um, there was a, we did some sort of the biggest loser thing. This couple that really wanted to lose some weight. they gained a bunch of weight and they were starting to feel unhealthy and um, not as active as they wanted to be. And they had a goal of, of learning how to salsa, learn how to, to salsa. So my trainer at the time, Karen Hauser. she is now on Strictly Ballroom in the UK. She's a huge celebrity there. At the time, she was just a trainer and a professional ballroom dancer. So I remember completely directing and orchestrating this scene where I have my hero couple in the elevator. We're lifting up. I told them the director to cue the music. So when the doors opened, all of a sudden this boom of salsa music comes in. And this couple is so excited because they're going to learn how to salsa dance. They stuck with it for six months and did reveal, yes, they lost some weight, but they were such fantastic salsa dancers that it gave them a new lease on life that something that seemed so daunting and scary would ultimately become this joyous thing that brought them closer together. So for me, it wasn't about the weight loss. It was about getting to have a group activity as a couple that brings you closer together and, and gives you another common goal that and I took charge of that I just remember directing the heck out of that moment because I knew what I wanted it to look like I knew the Broadway reveal I wanted in act two which would have been our follow-up right so I knew I wanted to go and using Mm -hmm. someone like Karen who's a stage performer now a huge celebrity in the UK it was just magic and those to be able to this is one of the things that people don't know I mean listen I have an Emmy at home oh that's the the Emmy's in the other room. There's a phone. There's a scary phone there now. It's Halloween. <laughs> you can't, viewer, listener, you cannot see my place is decorated for Halloween. But anyway,
1: I can see the yes, lights back a, there. <laughs> there's, a, there's an
3: old-fashioned phone nook in my apartment where my Emmy sits. Um, and you know, the show Queer Eye afforded me a lot of things, but one of the things that I, I, it didn't do, which may come as a surprise, was open acting doors. The one thing I got offered was to play Carmen guia Uh, on Broadway, because they thought, oh, fabulous gay, fabulous gay. And it was such a bizarre, I don't know if anyone's ever replaced someone before who's put on paid vacation. It's unpleasant. You're coming in, you have a cast of people who, on one hand, feel it's their obligation to welcome you, and on the other hand, they're like, damn, like, you literally are here, and our friend is not in the show. I mean, they were being paid. But it was a weird, it was a weird way to, I was excited to join the cast of the producers because it felt like a traditional big Broadway show and Rent was like, we felt like the kids down the yeah. way who didn't have as much.
1: Exactly. And
3: that moment was kind of ruined by some cast members and crew members, specifically Wardrobe, who treated me like an absolute monster as if my replacement was uh like that I was fueled with the information that you know someone was going to be benched for me to do three months and I just remember that tainting it so badly that I I never ended up doing another Broadway show after that um but queer I didn't open doors I've done a lot of regional I've played Usnavi and in the heights and and going back to our earlier point Mm. every reviewer who came to see me was like he can actually sing and he can really rap like Like I came as a novelty. And that's the other thing. When I started going to auditions here in LA for scripted work, the my friends, uh, we go back and forth on this. It's the, you're really good. As opposed to you were really good. It's the, I did, Mm -hmm. the subtext is, I know you were on that show. I just didn't expect you to be talented. And that is something I've struggled with my whole life, which is why I always return to cabaret. And that's why Thousand Sweet Kisses is so important to me because it's vulnerable, honest storytelling about a lot of these moments sung with great passion and humor in a way that, like, television and film doesn't really always afford me. The funny thing is I'm on a show called Uncoupled right now. Well, there's a strike. But when we return, most of our cast from Mm -hmm. Brooks ashkema I can't say his last name. We all know Brooks from The Prom and from – of from course,
1: we love him. I have you,
3: Ten points if you can say his name fast. Um, uh, Brooks, <laughs> I love, but like our entire cast—Colin Hamlin, who plays my husband, did Rent with me, Broadway. Neal's a singer. Tisha Campbell's a performer. Like our whole cast sings. I'm like, where's our musical episode? Uh, I don't know if that'll happen. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like there's some. <laughs> there are moments where singing has been the tipping point that's helped me get a TV role. Um, but it's it's rare. And um I moved here to do a singing show on Fox that was Dancing with the Stars format but singing. And I thought, ooh, when I tell you no, I thought that was gonna be my my I was gonna be on glee. And then when I saw that Matthew Morrison was playing the Spanish teacher, I thought, nope, I'm there's no way. If I can't even get a singing part as a Spanish teacher, um <laughs> It was fine because I did get another oh. Ryan Murphy show after before that, so it was okay. But but I but I, yeah. I think about that. Oh, Matthew Morrison would be a good person to ask. Does <gasps> he live in New York?
1: I think so. I mean, he's played at Fifty Four Below mm. uh, before. I um, Yeah, Matthew so- Morrison
3: and I go way back. Let me tell you. Okay, here's a little tea, dear listener. If you're still listening to this, thank you. Also, Matthew Morrison and I were like going to be roommates. We were like really good friends during the hairspray time when we were all like whatever. And we were like, let's stay again in Seattle. Like because out of town run. And we used to go out all the time. He used to come over uh, my boyfriend and I house. We used to host like, like after show parties and stuff. I just, I have all these pictures of us from like being like 21 years old. And then he goes out to become this mega star. Um, that's someone I hadn't thought of from that era of my life. That would be really fun to duet with. Interesting. Okay.
1: Amazing. I love it. Well, we are so so looking forward to your show. It's one of our highlights. I mean, th- we are we're killing it with the programming these two months because we've just had so many incredible stars and then you're kind of finishing off, you know, this beautiful Nella, period I think for you us. we should give us, we've just had, um you know. all
3: when we come in, I want to like take a Nellis seminar on because because <laughs> a everyone has anxiety about what they're going to do. It's also like, you know, thank God I have Drew, who's who's played there a bunch and everything. But it's, you have about 60 minutes, give or take. And you have, if you're someone like me, 18 years worth of stuff. What's the most important thing yeah. you want to share? What are the most important songs? Like right now we have 20 songs that we have to trim down to like probably mm. 11, 10, 12. Like you have to try to yeah. really have to trim, but it's like well, this song is kind of saying the same thing in this. And what are you sacrificing this? It's a yeah. science to get that tight 60.
1: It's such a science. And I know that we are, well, we're 60 to 75. So you have a little bit of room we're there. We're planning but 60 just in case I totally I get too it.
3: much. And I was like, I'm going to have an Apple yeah. watch that will start to vibrate when I'm at my 60. <laughs> I
1: you love know? it. I love it. Sometimes we have to, you know, wave or whatever, but... Uh, no, it's, you know, it is because we have two shows, uh, on the same night, but no, I think, you know, what is most meaningful and personal to you, your fans and the audience will feel that. And you are the best judge of well, that. I saw you know, you know.
3: you know, I knew Cheyenne Jackson from when I was in Rent and he, I, I believe he was in Thoroughly Modern Millie, um,
2: Mm, this I is think so, OG
3: yeah. Cheyenne, and he was partnered at the time. And this is when we all used to go to the clubs, Sound Factory, Twilo, Limelight. Like we were, in, we were in mm. our bad kid era, and and it's funny because I always looked at him and found him intimidatingly attractive because I was this twinky little Latin boy, and then when I got queer eye, they asked us to do this special, um, like a, a Scott Evans, no Scott Nevins wanted us to do this concert at Joe's Pub. It was a charity. And um Cheyenne Jackson and I did Elephant Love Medley from the Moulin Rouge.
1: Love it is on it.
3: YouTube, worth the watch.
1: Oh my gosh. I am getting I on remember, that now. Immediately. I
3: remember <laughs> they asked me to do it and they asked me to and I was petrified to ask Cheyenne. Years later He goes off to become not just a a big leading man on Broadway, but a massive television and film star. He's a staple out here. When you see Mm -hmm. him in cabaret uh, form, it is vulnerability to the max. He opens up his heart in such a beautiful way that if you were like me, thinking he's the scary, hunky guy that you could never talk to, he's not. Um, He is the hunky, but he is the most loving, kind, smart, compassionate man that I, I feel very fortunate to know. I just ran yeah. into him not so long ago, and I'm just always yeah. so ever inspired by theater folks who create a path that isn't just linear, but that they do all yeah. the things. It's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. It's wonderful. Like you. So We're we are really looking forward to your show. Um, remind everybody when your show is. Yes.
3: You can go to uh, 54below.org and you can get tickets there. And if you want to know more information or you want to like stay, follow me at J-A-I Rodriguez on Instagram. And I, Obviously in my bio, you can get tickets for this show. But you can kind of see all the fun little teaser videos I'll have rolling out. It's October 26th, 27th, and 28th. So if you're feeling festive, it's it's Halloween is going to be approaching – you want to do something, but you don't want to like be out till four in the morning. Get it. Get some tickets for my show. Get a group together. You know, I would love it if people came in with a like costume because I don't even know what I'm wearing yet. I'm trying to figure out like a nod, a wink, wink to Halloween without being super literal. Um, Drew and I are still sussing that out. But make it a fun outing with girlies. Remember the people that you used to go sleep outside of the rent theater to get tickets for. Call them. Remember the people that used to have martinis with while watching Queer Eye together? Get them together. Y'all, this is your show. These are the stories you're gonna wanna hear. And if you've never heard um, of the original Queer Eye or you didn't get a chance to see Rent, it was before your time. Come experience a piece of musical theater and LGBTQ history in a way that'll be informative, lighthearted, a lot of fun, and a lot of heart. A lot of our stories were not documented. We did not have social media. So, if you want to expand your knowledge about what really went down back then, come see A Thousand Sweet Kisses at 54 Below.
1: Fantastic. Thank you again, Jay, so, so much. It's been so delightful. Look forward to seeing you here in Yay. person. And to everybody at home, thanks for listening. Um, again, 54below.org for tickets and information. And we look forward to seeing Jay there. Thanks. Thank
3: you so much for taking the time.
1: You've been listening to the 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. To find out more about our upcoming shows, visit us at 54below.org.